Welcome to Lighthouse Community Church Online. We are so thankful that you chose to tune in to watch online or listen via podcast. This series is titled New, a compelling, practical, and inspiring letter to you and the Church of the Colossians. As you tune in, may we encourage you to do a couple of things that will help you be the new person God has intended you to be. As you engage with the message, choose to be attentive, take notes, and share with us anything God impresses on your heart. Let us know if there is a next step that we can help you walk into. You don't have to go it alone. And stay engaged by texting the word CONNECT to 954-923-8660. You will be kept in the know about upcoming events and important news. Now, let's tune in to hear what God has to say to us through Paul's letter to the Colossians. So just the background, we're in our series. Uh, this is the next to the last message in this series out of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, which we call Colossians. Uh, this, today's message is called Let Peace Rule. So again, next to the final message and let peace rule. And who, who doesn't want peace in their life, right? I mean, the whole world is crying for that. We have people begging for it, whether you're in the church or out, that we want peace, we, we package it up, we go to therapists for peace, like anything to get it. And, and yet here we have in the, in the halls of scripture, we have the answer to what people are looking for and, and how to live a life that is at peace with ourselves and with, and with God in particular and with one another. So last week I opened up with a, a movie and I'm going to use the same one today. It's, if you were here last week, if you heard it, we talked about A Beautiful Mind. That was, in my opinion, Russell Crowe's best performance. Great flick, and those that, that missed the storyline on that, it's about a Dr. Uh, Nash, who is a genius, Nobel Prize-winning mathematician, who uh, is great in his mind, but he's living this double life. And on one side of his life, he has a wife, and he has children, and he has his career. And on the other side of his life, he has a guy named uh, Charles and Pasher that he believes are his roommate and somebody that's somehow helping him in espionage and decoding Russian secrets. And, and so one of those was a true life, and the other of those was a false life. And he had uh, been diagnosed after he came and bottomed out to his very end. And... It, he came to find out through an intervention that he had schizophrenia and that these characters on this side, the false self, weren't real at all. And yet he had put his whole life wrapped around something that wasn't true. Um, but towards the end of that uh, movie and in the final scenes is really key for us today to understand because it's very applicable to us. So he's going through his life living to what's true even though these characters that are in his mind are real as you and I are to each other at this moment. Yet he had to live a life that ignored their voices, tune them out, and listen to what was real over here. And that would be tough when you think this is real and this is real, to take that and ignore the other. He successfully did that, and I'm sure he had struggles along the way. But when he gets to the end of it, his... Uh, colleague Martin asked him the question, uh, John, do you, do, you still, do you still see them? Are they still there? And I love his answer. He said it this way. He said, I've gotten used to ignoring them, and I think as a result, they've kind of given up 
on me. I think that's what it's like with all our dreams and our nightmares. Martin, we've, we've got to keep feeding them for them to stay alive. In order for them to stay alive, this false self, we've got to keep feeding it. In other words, if he stopped feeding it and they became distant and faint and off to the future, they weren't as active a part of his life. They were still there, and he could still see them when he spoke in the crowd. And wherever he went out, they were there, but they were in the distance now. And the same is true with your life. In the spiritual life for the believer, we talked last week as a reminder, you have two natures. You have the old you. That's the person. That's you. You's the one you grew up with. It's got desires and compulsions and things that are that are just natural for you. This is called just your nature. And then you have the one when you said yes to Jesus and you became his, then you were deposited with the Holy Spirit and you were reborn. That's what he means, be born again. You were born anew spiritually into a new person. And you have this new self. But you still have this false self over here who is invading your brain every single day. It's pulling you to make decisions. It's working to be the ruler and the decider of your life. And then you come along and you're this new believer and you read from Paul that you are dead to that and this is, you are alive in Christ, resurrected with him, and you look at that and goes, I just don't understand it. We said last week that maturity starts first with knowing that you've got two opposing natures residing in you. You have to admit that. It starts with admitting that. And God is calling us in the normal Christian life to resist this nature over here, as Dr. John Nash did to his false voices in his mind, so that they will become distant out there in the past, no longer having rules, still existing, but no longer ruling us as they once had. But you cannot live both lives, and you cannot be double-minded. Otherwise, as Jesus said, you'd be no good to yourself or to anyone else. So we're going to revisit the words, the paraphrase from Eugene Peterson out of Galatians 5 from last week, just to put it in perspective through scriptures. This is the way Peterson said it. He said, these two ways of life, the old and the new, are contrary to each other. So that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. I relate to that, do you? I, I often live how I feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? That's the call of God, that we would stop in this giving attention and feeding this side over here. We used a metaphor last week that Paul uses that in order to do that, to obey the new nature, that we need some new clothes. Clothes make the Christian. We need to dress in God's character, dress up in his likeness, because this is true to the real you. He said it last week, clothe yourselves then with things like compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We are to dress up to look like our God. That's the clothes that we wear so that we will look like him, that we would be his living image to the best that we can in the nature, fallen nature that we carry around with us. Do you, any of you remember, uh, it's an old book. It probably was published in the 
70s. I, I read it early in my career, and it was called Dress for Success. Author's name was Malloy. And it, it was a primer on how to get ahead in your career and how to dress for it. And basically, the premise of the book, at the very core of its premise, was to dress like your boss. If you want your boss's job, you got to start looking like your boss, right? And, and I think back on that, and I think there's a, there's a real application spiritually for us, that we are to dress like our boss, and that we're able to do this not because of ourselves, but because who lives in us, that this power in us transforms from the inside out, that we can actually have these characteristics of gentleness, patience, kindness, humility, etc. Clothing impacts the world. How we dress in character every day really does have an impact, has an impact on your family, has an impact on the world around us, in our workplace. It makes a difference. I saw this very clearly sometime back. Um, there was an acquaintance I have, not a friend, he's an acquaintance, and I had seen him for a number of years at a particular event that I would attend. And, and he, worked for, he works for the federal government, still does, uh, and he has a very important job. He's a director of a particular division that is very critical to protecting yourself and your health and safety, my health and safety. And he would come to speak at these private events. And, and when he spoke, he'd spoke about things that were important. And so uh, his department had made a decision that people weren't taking him seriously in order to do that because of who he works for, the umbrella, that they would change his uniform. So instead of a suit and tie, they made him a military uniform. And they put him in dress blues, loaded with brass, and he had stripes, and he had stars, and he had medals. Had a matching hat with braids. And when he ever he went and walked in a room, it totally changed. When I first saw him in his uniform, I used to call him by his name. Hey, I'll call him Vince. Vince, how you doing? But then when I saw him, I said, sir, how you doing, sir? Everybody did. It changed everything. It changed how he was greeted at the airport on the way out. When he talked, people would lean in and listen to what he had to say. He spoke with authority, not because he was any different or what he was saying was anything more important than he said before, but he was dressed with authority. In the same way, believers, that we get to dress up in a way that will give us the authority when we speak. A lot of the Christians shouting and fighting and screaming and whining that we have going on over the airwaves today is not being heard. And it's not being heard because it's not true. It's not being heard because of the hypocrisy of the way we're dressed. We are being muzzled out by hypocrisy. And if we will change our clothes and dress up in his character, we will be much better heard. We will carry the authority. John the Baptist is a great example. I mean, there was, he did not skim on the truth in any way. You know that. He didn't shave it at all. He, his call, he was, had a baptism of repentance was his description. That was on his business card. John the Baptist, Baptist of repentance. It's not a thing I would want to hand out in public. And yet he, he comes out and this is who he is. And he's, and he's direct and he's straight. But, the, but John the baptizer had character. He had the virtue of honesty, the virtue of sincerity. He lived, he separated himself 
away from the world, and he lived as one eating locusts out in the desert, dressing, wearing the leather and the belt, that he was somebody you could trust because he lived it. He wore it right. And he was so credible, even though he spoke such a tough message, that even the religious leaders, the prominent leaders, did not want to tick the crowd off against John because they knew it would cause a riot. He was that popular and had that big a following. Clothes make the Christian. He lived his belief. And so Paul goes on in his letter and he says that peace comes. Peace comes when we make God our ultimate decider. We're in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And he says it this way. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. There's a ruler of your heart. Everybody has something that's going to rule your heart in a decision that you make. The moment you get up in the morning, there is a ruler. And now we know that we've given our life over to him as a believer. But day to day, we have choices. And Paul comes out and he says, when you're going to make your choices in your way that you respond and you react, you will net, let the peace of God rule your heart. And so what does he mean by that? The, the word peace there in the Greek is what we would think it to mean. It's the absence of conflict. It's the, it's the inclusion of, of things working together rightly. We're in a season, brethren, of very little peace. Would you agree? There's high conflict in the world. Peace is not being ruled. And a lot of it is based on one thing, the the popular belief of mankind, and this has evolved over the last 50 years, the popular belief of mankind across the globe, not every place, but across the globe in large part, is that man is the author of his own destiny. He is the captain of his own soul, and he is the ruler of his own life, and he gets to make decisions according to how he or she feels those decisions should be made. We are to live our truth. We have taken God out of rulership of our life. This has seeped in, of course, to us as Christians. It has me for sure. That we, we get into that thinking and believing that we do not have a ruler. But that whole premise of thinking that we do not need to submit to an ultimate ruler, that we are not yielding it over to another decision maker, is causing chaos and confusion in our lives. That is the root of a lot of it. That is why you see chaos in the world. It's confusion and conflict because we no longer, as we did some many decades ago, we used to have a general list of principles. We call them Judeo-Christian principles today. Call them whatever you'd like. But we had a set of principles that families and people would submit to. We basically believed the same thing about most things, not everything. And that harmonized and, and unified us around that belief and so we would submit to those principles but as soon as you wipe away the principle and says you are the captain of your own truth and the captain of your destiny and you make all the decisions and no one tells you who you are or what you do we eliminate the principle and what you have is anarchy every person for themselves and it's chaotic and that's why you're seeing this rise in anxiety 
and fear. The evidence of that is simple. Therapists are in high demand at this moment. Book a new therapist appointment, unless they're brand new and got their license, it's probably months, weeks at the earliest before you get in. There's a run on sedatives and things to take the edge off of our life. Alcohol consumption is up. We know that and through recovery that we have a record number of overdoses. Anxiety and fear has crept into the church where it should have no place. And so we have this peace and he comes, he said, let peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. He's saying, brethren, you have been called to a life of peace, not fear, not anxiety. Your call is one of peace. What kind of peace? What does it look like? It looks like a boat that's hit by a hurricane and everyone thinks they're going to die. And you've got one guy, the Lord himself, sleeping in the stern, just taking a nap. He, he was at peace. He knew this wasn't to the very end. It's the Apostle Paul in a shipwreck. Everyone on the ship, 200 and some passengers, crew and prisoners, thinking this is the very end. You see that in the book of Acts. It's the very end of our life. We're going to die. They're so nervous and afraid that nobody can eat. They hadn't eaten in days. And you've got one guy on the ship who's like, hey, you guys should eat. You guys should eat. It's going to be okay. You guys, you guys should eat. And that is the peace of God. That he, he had a peace and he understood he had a ruler. It's, it's two guys brutally beaten and thrown in prison for, under false pretenses and chained up while in there, sitting against their backs with their wounds against it, chained to the guards, treated miserably in this dark dungeonous cave below where probably they're smelling their excrement in their urine. And they break out in song and they sing. And they sing hymns to God. And all the prisoners hear them. And the guards as well. To be at peace, we see in Romans, is to be God-minded. For to be carnally minded, that means a mind that is on our life and on the things of this world. To be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be spiritually minded, to think about things above, to put our attention on him, to raise all of our eyes and our attention on trust and faith and confidence in him. That is a tough thing to do in a world that tries to pull us away through all the people that we've got. We may not have a medical, chemical schizophrenia, but we all have it in the natural. This pool of our life that wants to take us down and pull us aside. God's peace separates us from the world that is anxious and fearful. He says this. Jesus said these words. This is what he said. These are Jesus' words. He said, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. I don't give you anxiety and fear and trauma. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Jesus is saying the opposite of peace is fear and anxiety. That you are not born and intended in purpose to live a life of chronic anxiousness and fear. But we are to have the peace of God reigning in us. And we're going to get to how to do that. And Jesus had this intention. God had this intention as believers. That the Christian community is to be a showcase 
of the reconciliation and the peace of Christ that, has brought, that was brought between heaven and earth. Let me explain that. We are to be a showcase of what God has done for you and I. By coming here, living a perfect life, and though in our wretchedness and our depravity and ugliness and sin, not getting anything from us except our faith and confidence in him, he offers to make up with us. Just as we said last week that we were at odds with God. We've had a breakup with God since our very childhood. And God wants to make up, and he came to make up, and the only way he could do that was to surrender by humiliation his own very life. And so the ultimate reconciliation that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us is at the very core of this, and that reconciliation and peace is to be the hallmark of a Christian community. Jesus said that you will know them by two things, their unity and their love. And all of that is rooted in one central theme, and that is God's unconditioned forgiveness except by faith alone through grace. It's a big deal. I was, you know that when you get a revelation, God tests you. You know that, right? You all have had it, right? God gives you a great revelation, and you get something, and then all of a sudden you're tested in it. Now, last Sunday, I was here preaching part one of this, right? And so, of course, by Monday morning, I am confronted with the voice in my head. The, the other side, my, my own guys calling me out, Greg, calling me to it. And I had a problem with my uh, internet and mobile phone provider. Um, I absolutely hate dealing with that stuff. On this particular occasion, I had already called them twice about the same issue and problem. It's a mistake. It's a clear mistake. Both times they told me it was fixed. I mean, by number three, I have a right to be mad. You know what I mean? I have a right. I have earned that right. And so I got it, and, and I'm, I'm aware of my, my flesh. I'm, I'm at least that sensitive. And so I, the last two reps had promised that it was fixed, and each time I ended the call, are you sure? I'm sure. So you know the pathway now. In order to get to a representative, you have to go through the artificial intelligence bots, right? And that's a lot of fun. Because you know that what I'm calling about is not on any of the six options on the menu. So only thing I get to start off this wonderful conversation is, I'm sorry, I don't recognize that request. I said, accounting problem. And then, have you ever yelled at an AI? Yeah, yeah. They don't yell back, it's cool. But it's so fresh. No, representative. I don't understand that request. Person, person, person. I do not understand your request. Billing. I don't, do you want to pay a bill? No, you pay, you're charging me too much already. Like, like, you know, right? So I finally do get a representative. I don't know how far it's gone along at this time. To me, it felt like hours. He got on the phone and the voice came to me, threaten, demand, tell him you're going high up, whatever. Get even, all those thoughts that come to us 
They don't come to you? Yeah, they do. Yeah. All the things that you want to do to get benched. I'm going to leave my account. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to cancel it, cancel it. All those things came. And it flooded me. And the voice called me, Greg, you have a right. And I get person on the phone. And we start the conversation. And, and so I know I could be firm. I think that's acceptable to be firm, don't you? I could be firm. But I couldn't be in my flesh. I can't curse. I had to bless. And I remember that choice. And so what was happening was that the question came, is peace ruling my heart? I had to go to peace. And the word rule in the scriptures, most of you know this, means a referee or an umpire, a decider. That Jesus, he is peace, by the way. His name, one of his names is peace. That, that he is the ultimate decider. So I needed to decide if he was going to be the decider or if I was going to yield to my decider. So I worked at, it was not easy, at letting him be the decider. We finally get to the end of the call, and I did what I always do on the third time and asked, is it all fixed now? And he assured me, like the other two did, that it was. I thanked him for his efforts and his time. I thanked him for being so diligent, going back and checking things, and, and for his care in the call. And somehow in that conversation, I experienced the peace of God, not because for a minute do I think they actually fixed it, because I highly doubt it. But I do believe that the Spirit of God honors when we go to him as the decider and not you and me, that he had to rule the hearts of the people. Here's how he ended the conversation, and this is what blew me away. At the very end, yes, God bless you, sir, and have a blessed day. I'm talking to a brother. I knew it. Like, I could have blasted a brother. What, what a testimony that would have been. And this man is, like, he blessed, he blessed me. Just leaving there was just something that just solidified something in my heart of how important it is that we make him the ruler of our heart and not you and I. And by the way, God will exact Anytime you want, he will accept your resignation. Today, I'm hoping that we leave here at least endeavoring to resign from the ruler of our heart, that we will turn in our resignation and let him take it. If God's peace does not rule your heart, chaos will. I want you to imagine with me for a moment a football game, a baseball game, and a basketball game. Pick any of those tennis match. Guy gets into the end zone. There's a flag down on the field. He doesn't care because in him, he scored a touchdown game over. His team is cheering and celebrating. The other team is out there and refs are in people's face and they're, they're going and saying, no, nah, you got it. Change the call offsides and whatever. They're calling the ball back. Fourth down. Imagine this in a tennis match. and You have the ball, it's, it hits, we're not sure if it hit the net or hits the line. It's out or is it in? And Each player in today's culture would be saying, like, I feel like it's in. 
and the other opponent would say, I feel like it's out. Well, you have your truth, and I'll have my truth. Football player takes an end zone. I feel like it's a touchdown. I don't feel, the backer said on the offensive line, I don't feel that I was offsides. I don't feel it. I don't think I was. My truth is that I was onside, and it's all good. The other team says, I don't feel that. Baseball game, and you, you have the guy rounding third. He's coming in for a tight run at home. The umpire is watching carefully as he slides in the home base. The ball is coming into his mitt. Is he in or is he out? Runner says, I feel like I'm in. The other team says, you're out. Everybody's got to do one thing in all these scenarios. They've got to look over at the ref or look over at the ump and say, what's the call? Otherwise, there's chaos. There would be no sport you'd ever want to watch, but this is exactly what we're promoting in our culture, that somehow we can all be our own ref and ump, and God is calling us Christian, that we would resign from the role and that we would make him the supreme decider of everything that we do. All those decisions, Jesus, what do you want me to do? The old you does not look up. It constantly looks within Paul said this very clearly. He said, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. You used to be the captain in charge of your life. You used to be the decider of your life. But when you come to me, you let God rule your heart. He will rule your heart. And if you do that, and you let his peace saturate you in his life. He says it this way. If you want God's peace, you must saturate yourself with him being the ruler and with his word. Listen to what Paul says next. This is his exhortation. If you want God's peace, you must saturate yourself in the truth of God. His words, inspired in revelation from his Holy Spirit, he said it this way. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. In Acts 2, we see that the church had a devotion. They devoted themselves to the word of God and they devoted themselves to prayer. These two devotions were instrumental in the church having its foundation, and they are no less significant today than they were back then. If we want to enjoy the peace of God, we must let him be the ultimate ruler of our decisions. Lord, what do you want me to do? God, do you, what do you think of this relationship? Lord, what do you think of this business opportunity? God, what, what, do, you, what do you think about fill in the blank? And then in order to have the answer from the decider, he has given his words. And so Paul is just very naturally saying that you will saturate yourself. Let the message of Christ, let the word of God dwell among you richly. Be in you, dwell, make a home in you. Occupy every room of your very being. Come out of your pores. Have you ever been with anyone? They just like, they know the word, but they, they're like, they're not bragging they're not pretentious they just know his word and their word is such a part of them that they love him and and they just ooze and overflow with God's truth 
Like whenever situation you're in, they, they just come out and it just falls out of them. It's, it, it permeates their life. The word has made a home in their life. Peace comes from having God's word, it's, which is very hard to do in this McQuick generation. We've got McQuick culture of sound bites, short clips, and short narratives and memes. And, and all ruled that way. But God is asking us in here through Paul, he's saying, let it dwell richly and deeply in you, not by a surface sound bite, that it gets in your very being. And the reason we do that, and we don't put God packed away in the closet or the garage with our tools, and we get him when we need him, that he is to permeate our life is because God is going to live in you. He does live in you, and he wants to take the whole house. C.S. Lewis had a great quote. And he says, imagine yourself as a, as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He, he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. He fixes your pressing issues, your marriage, your finances. He does all that. You'd hope that he would do that, and he does it. C.S. Lewis goes on. But presently... He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out the new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up the towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, Lewis says, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And that's why, for us, that this process, that God is living and he dwells in us, but he wants the whole house. And so Paul writes these wonderful words inspired by the Holy Spirit. In order to do that, then there's got to be a ruler of your house that's not you. And there needs to be inhabited in you his truth so that we can judge if it's in or if it's out, if it's really a touchdown or it isn't. One can have, as you know, one can have the words of God and yet their words do not dwell in them. You know that, right? You've met people that are just full of knowledge of his word and yet they have no character to, to back it up. It's like vitamin supplements. Did you know this? I didn't know this about supplements. Like for years, I... I was taking, you know, some calcium tablets. And doctor goes, your, your D level is low. Yeah? Well, did you know that calcium can't be absorbed in your body unless you have the right amount of D in it? Like, no. So here, I, all I have all these years is expensive urine. I had no idea. Honestly. It's true. And it's the same way that, that putting the word in you without the ingredient of, of an absorption is, is, is meaningless. It's just high-mindedness that puffs up, he says in his word. You're just a failure. And I see that often as an example. Uh, the, the internet pundits out there that under the banner of Christendom. And it does drive me crazy. Not as crazy as AI bots on my phone call. It's the pundits that are dressed in Christian garb and they freely destroy other believers online. They have their names and their podcasts and, and they do it all by bypassing clear biblical guidelines. Like there are very clear guidelines on how you approach an elder, of how you speak the truth in somebody's life with gentleness. 
there are very clear guidelines on how we are to judge. Jesus said it very clearly. You've you got to look at your own faults, the log in your own eye, before you take the speck out. You, you have to do things in humility if you're going to judge. You can judge, but you have to do it with humility. And, and yet in all this that I read, hardly any of it is done with any humility whatsoever. It bypasses love that assumes the best of another, not believes the worst. And I think, let us not fall into that trap that we have clear biblical guidelines and we are to absorb his word. And the only way you can absorb it is to apply it because when you apply it, the spirit of God will agree with the application and you'll do what happened to me on that phone. You will sense the peace of God ruling your heart through your very being, no matter what the chaos is. Somehow you may be disturbed, you may be pressed to your end, but at the very end, you'll have this core peace ballast holding you. It's career choices, for the wrong reasons and you haven't submitted them to the ruler and you can't understand why you're out of peace and you did it just for the money without thinking of the consequences of what it do to your family or your relationship with the Lord, your fellowship with one another, relationships you get into because you're sincerely and legitimately lonely and afraid and you ignore all the red flags and, and you enter in anyway despite the warnings of your friends and your family and you do it because you haven't gone to the great decider activities that pull you back into the old way of life that you know are dangerous, but you just feel like that's what you gotta do. It's a debt you can't pay. That's the kind of stuff that the decider wants to rule so that we could be at peace. Those who keep the word of God in their heart and obey it in their actions are ruled by the peace of God. Peace is a fruit of our devotion to Christ. The greater your devotion to him, the greater the single-mindedness, the greater the peace we're going to experience. None of us have arrived there. Can we say amen to that? Not me, not you. But that's where we're going. This is the normal Christian life. And then Paul goes on to say that we're going to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude. What's he saying? He's just saying this, once you've got the ruler in place, and once you're saturated with his word, then when, you, when you're together, wherever you are, you sing of his truth. Singing is so important. It has been since the early church and before. That, that song, do you, do you know that the Old Testament's made up of five sections? You know what one of them is? It's a hymn book. It's the Psalms are nothing more than a hymnal. And they memorized these, and there was greater devotion often and sometimes in certain sects today, greater devotion on the Psalms than any other part of the Tanakh. Because it's the word of God packaged to go. What we sing here today, we, it's a package of, you want that to go? Yeah, here it is. You go out of here and you get out singing. We sing to one another. We sing it as the Psalm says. We praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. It looks good on you. It looks good. It's but about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Unfortunately, in the 80s, the Sunday singing somehow evolved in some sections into a show. And I'm glad to see that there's a resurgence of restoring true worship in God's house. Uh, wrong from the redundant, meaningless, shallow choruses. We're, we're coming back to some depth in, in our singing and what it is we sing. It's theology 
put to song. The things, the message of God that's going to permeate your very being, that's going to seep into everything you do. Johnny Erickson taught us, Pastor has mentioned her, I'll show you a picture of her. That's her. That's her on your right singing. She's always singing. She broke her neck at age 17. 17 years old, she, she had her whole life ahead of her, great athlete, great student, very smart, super talented. And, and when she broke her neck, she lost the ability to use her legs and her arms. She's a quadriplegic. She, by her own testimony, she went into great depression. And she said what pulled her out of her depression was those hymns that were instilled in her in her youth when she was young and her parents instilled the theology of God in song. And so while in her darkness, she reached deep in her darkness for the facts that her faith could attach to and that would overcome and eventually change her experience. And so you can imagine her there thinking for a moment that her life is over and then the song of God comes back and she sings, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. And God has called us to put that kind of truth deep in us because it will take you out. It took her out of the darkness. You see her, Johnny's there with the Getty family. They are prolific from Ireland, prolific modern hymn writers. Keith and, and Caitlin and their three girls. Johnny was with them at her home in Pasadena, California. Keith uh, and Caitlin were visiting with the girls and they went for a walk. You got to remember, just to put this in perspective, California is not the most church state in the United States. That's an understatement. Less so than Broward County. So they go out for a walk and Johnny's got a reputation that wherever she goes, she's got a song on her lips. She's just a person that is singing to God. She can't move her feet, and she doesn't have her own arms, and yet she sings to God for his goodness. It just flows out of her, and it permeates his word, permeates her very being in song and in word. And they go out, and one of those three girls is pushing her wheelchair, and she breaks out into an old Andre Crouch hymn. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Soon, and you imagine six people, five redheads and Johnny Erickson Tata in Pasadena, California, going down the string and belting out, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Whenever I'm in a store, I... I listen for people that sing, that have words on their lips. And every once in a while, it's not an Adele tune. It's, I hear the praises of God. The person I know, they're dripping with the praise of God. And if I know the song, yes, you will be embarrassed if you're with me. I will sing with them. I'll do it at Target, Publix, I don't care. They're singing, I'm singing, I'll sing with you. Our God, he's an awesome God. Yes, he is, awesome God. Yes, there's lightning in his fist. I get you, I'm with you. And I think that's what he wants. I'm gonna finish this up next week and what we can do, but we're gonna make a habit. 
We're going to make a habit of going to God and saying, God, what do you think? What does your word say? And if you're at that place of you don't have the maturity to do that, then you need to ask somebody that does. Get some help. Don't override the peace test, by the way. Peace test is, do I have peace in this? Now, if you're young and immature, this isn't going to work for you because you don't know what real peace is like now. You've got to learn the voice of God. That's why his word is so important. But the peace test is important. You know what we do on the peace test? Those of you who've been around a bit, we just put don't accept. We just, we just override the peace test. I'm sorry, I know I don't have peace here, but it's going to make me rich. I know I don't have peace here, but I love her. And we put don't accept, don't accept, cancel, cancel, cancel. We override it. Don't do that. Soak yourself in God's word. And fill your life with song, Spotify, Pandora, whatever you got. Eight track, it doesn't matter. You got a cassette player still, throw one in. It's okay. I'm going to take us here. We're going to sing song. When we sing here, we're singing, teaching, and admonishing one another. That's what he says. We are, when you sing, you're singing to your neighbor, with your neighbor. You're teaching and admonishing so that everybody could hear it. You'll do it loudly because of him, and he'll, he'll drip out of us and pour out. Would you rise with me, please, as we sing it as well. I do hope that you heard from God through this message and this series drawn from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. I never tire of reading this portion of Scripture as they consistently encourage, convict, redirect, and align my heart and soul with God. Within the Scriptures, we are handed practical, personal instruction that we can apply to our lives. And it is only when we have applied and obeyed the truth that we are transformed by the spirit of the living God. So make today count. Take action and do let us know how we can help you in your walk to your newness of life.